in movies that have zero G, they always want to give the actors short haircuts because it would be a hassle to have hair either like simulated or, or animated in zero G. Yeah. Well, yeah, you can't you can't do it on Earth, right? You can't really simulate real zero G. You could potentially film it underwater and like overlay it or something, but even like trying to key that in, I feel like would be next to impossible. Yeah, I think underwater. The only other one, only other way would be to film in like forty second spurts or whatever on like the oh, parabolic yeah. <laughs> loop kind of stuff that a uh, parabolic loop that the plane flies on. Yeah, uh, which would suck. <laughs> I'm sure no one really wants to do that very expensive process i'm sure yeah but yeah vfx would just be crazy to do here well i I, i'm wondering now with the vfx because nowadays like when you when you talk about things like unreal engine and like this melding of of 3d kind of environment technology and and film like maybe you could model that like in 3d space not necessarily manually change the hair but if you had a really high fidelity and a really powerful renderer maybe you could overlay that into it but yeah, there's still so many points to try to control. Yeah. So you definitely need something that's efficient, maybe procedural. That that also looks real. Because like you can do it for uh, for Tangled. Like there's a lot of hair technology in that. But like try to put that onto a real human and see what it looks like. So we need Pixar to advance zero G <laughs> hair technology. I would love to see a Pixar movie. In sp- I guess they did Wally, <laughs> So maybe I don't need to see that. Welcome back, everyone, to Sci Minus Phi, a movie club for science nerds and a science club for movie nerds. I'm your host, Christopher Stern. And I'm Nathan Yim. We like to talk about all things sci-fi. Every episode, we explore a new science fiction movie and get into a discussion about the science concepts that are present in the film. Now, before we get into everything today, just want to throw a spoiler warning. We will be talking about uh, spoilers in um, this episode about the movie Interstellar. And so um, you should go and watch that if you haven't seen it and uh, come and join us when, when you're done. Yeah, this is a good film to kind of get back into things because we did a bit of a hiatus. Um, and it's actually kind of the first film, I think, that I wanted to do when we kind of started talking about Sci Minus Fi. It was one of the inspirations for it, so it's fun to finally, yeah, watch it, get into it. Yeah, well, I'm excited. Uh, do you want to give us kind of a, a little bit of a background on Interstellar? Can do, yeah. Interstellar is a 2014 film directed by Christopher Nolan and written by both Christopher Nolan and his brother Jonathan Nolan. It stars Matthew McConaughey, Anne Hathaway, Jessica Chastain, uh, Michael Caine, Casey Affleck, and John Lithgow. Interstellar takes place down on like a dying Earth plagued by blight and dust storms, while Cooper, played by McConaughey, is a former pilot and engineer who now farms while raising his two kids. After a gravitational anomaly shows up in his house, Cooper and his daughter Murph are led to NASA where they discover the last attempt to save the human race. Cooper is recruited to go through a wormhole and find an inhabitable planet in another galaxy. He accepts, leaving his children behind. On their mission, Cooper, along with Dr. Brand, who's played by Anne Hathaway, Romilly, and Doyle, uh, they encounter strange new worlds 
and the extreme forces of relativity in the race against fuel, food, and time to find the people of Earth a new home. It's funny that you mentioned fuel, food, and time uh, because there's a line in the movie that uh, Brand or Anne Hathaway says, which is essentially like, we got to treat time as a resource because um, we don't have a lot of it. Well, I don't know if she adds that last part. but uh, Yeah, so because the movie, right, they take Earth is essentially dying. They're saying that like the crops are going to die out. Corn, kind of the last crop they can grow, has a blight that's coming in and soon they won't be able to grow anymore. So, yeah, they only have a certain amount of time before, uh, I guess, the people of Earth can no longer grow anything. And because relativity is such a huge part of this movie, um, time is valuable. They can't waste it. Should we talk about kind of at a high level plan A and plan B and what that means? I think so. Yeah. So in this uh, in this movie, they are searching for an inhabitable, inhabitable planet for kind of humanity to continue. Um, that's sort of the broad stroke of the plan. But it's kind of split up into plan A and plan B. So... Do you remember which one was which? Yes. So essentially, plan A is a plan where you can save the people on Earth because um, there's this equation called like the gravity equation that Michael Caine's character has been working on for his entire career. And then eventually Murph, who's played by uh, Jessica Chastain as an adult, uh, also works on. And uh, the theory is that if this gravity equation gets solved, then they can actually launch essentially this station um, with Earth's humans. I don't know if they're planning on taking everyone uh, up through uh, the wormhole near Saturn and then to this new hospitable planet that uh, that they've discovered. Now, plan B is that if they can't actually solve said equation, then uh, they can start life anew on a new planet using a, a whole bunch of, uh, I guess, zygotes or embryos um, to restart the human race and then form a colony there. Um, essentially leaving all the humans that are on Earth to to perish. Yeah, so you essentially have two forms of Earth colonization, one through kind of like this sort of seed system of yeah having the embryos, and then the other is actually we go and uh, build a settlement on another planet, right? Yes, and I guess the I get we we're definitely getting to spoiler territory already, but I think um, the interesting thing is that. They kind of do both <laughs> in this movie. <laughs> yeah. They say, uh, yeah, the, I guess uh, Michael Caine, who plays Professor Brand, who's trying to solve that equation, right, for plan A to work, is just like, oh, it doesn't actually work. So, um, yeah, he was just going to go ahead and let them colonize through plan B. Uh, but Murph, the resourceful and using the tools given to her by her dad, <laughs> uh, is able to solve that equation. And the missing piece in his equation is essentially that it requires a theory of everything, uh, which is uh, this reconciliation of both quantum mechanics and relativity. Uh, currently, those are, this is kind of the biggest question in, in physics today, which is um, the fact that we don't have a single unified theory that explains the very small and the very big all under one umbrella. You know, we, we know how to use relativity um, very practically you know how to use quantum mechanics very practically but for some reason when you are speaking on these different scales you can't use the same rules uh to to, to, to look at them and so i guess that's like the one thing that's missing and uh, the thing that they they do in this movie is that 
um, they say, hey, well, there is data that we can use to solve this equation, but it's inside of a black hole. And so that's kind of why Michael Caine actually doesn't think that plan A is feasible at all, uh, because he's actually solved the gravity equation, but is missing that secret piece. And uh, he doesn't think that um, it'll be possible to get that. Yeah, the stakes are pretty high in this film, right? You got yeah the kind of the downfall of humanity as one. You got just the personal struggle of uh, Cooper wanting to visit his family. And I guess Bran's personal struggle, struggle of wanting to uh, see the person she loves again. I guess you have also just one guy who's left alone for 20 years. <laughs> 23 years, yeah. I like... Man, it's going to be... I'm realizing how difficult it's going to be to talk about the different things in this movie without explaining every part of <laughs> like the mission. Yeah. So let's kind of maybe walk it back. So you've said before that you've watched this now three times. Yep. And you've really liked it, right, this time? Really, really liked it, yeah. yeah. So what were some of the highlights for you in this this watch? I think kind of everything ties up pretty well at the end and still um i don't know maybe i'm just a sucker for this kind of hopeful ending um and and space exploration and and the spirit of humankind continuing but um i felt like it all tied together nicely um i felt like it was super cool that there were real science um terms and theories injected into the story as well uh, and then not to mention just the acting, the the actual storyline and the visuals were stunning and the music. Um, there was nothing really not to love, I think. Um, and speaking of love, I think it was neat that this movie really blended together love and science, which are, I guess, in some ways uh, in our everyday life, people think of, you know, emotion and logic as, as separate things. And this movie kind of works to bring them together into one. Right. It's like, yeah, they have that conversation about um, having, yeah, following love and following your heart isn't objective. Uh, right. One scene where they're like, do we go to Edmund's planet or do we go to man's? Like, well, man's has more promising data, whereas you're just in love with Edmund's and want to see him again. And so you're not being objective, right? Um, it's more of an emotional thing. But yeah, at the same time, love is kind of, maybe what drives us and can help us push us forward right yeah no exactly and i will say like i i thought that the line that anne hathaway says as well like love is the thing that can transcend time and space is cheesy and i i thought you know it didn't sound necessarily too uh literal but thinking of it from like a storytelling perspective and um from a character perspective i thought know it works well I, as much as that's kind of like a memeable line or yeah it's seen as cheesy i think i kind of like it just because it works so well right like it does transcend time and space right you can love people who are dead or <laughs> like 50 years later you still might love them um they might not yeah and no matter where they are as well right you can love someone if they're halfway across the world if they're halfway uh -huh. across the universe that's that's it's very true I think um, the thing that trips me up is you could say that about any emotion as well, right? You could. It's a hate transcends time and space or, yeah, fear. But, like, I get it. And, like, it works well in the movie, in the context. Yeah. No, definitely. Uh, 
Well, I like what you said about enjoying kind of the optimistic sci-fi element of it. Um, even though it starts on this kind of post-apocalyptic um, in Earth, I guess, or Earth is dying. At the same time, it is very hopeful and kind of showing us, no, we can still like look forward and uh, progress as a species. Um, yeah, which sometimes, like, yeah, maybe it's just now what we see. Sci-fi doesn't necessarily have a lot of that. Um, or maybe it does. I'm just not watching the right movies. Yeah, I, I think there has been a trend over the last a while. I don't know if it's years or decades worth, but of this move from you know the Jetsons future uh, being very bright, uh, very optimistic in science fiction to this type of dystopian type future that you'd expect when you start delving into kind of cyberpunk um, science fiction or um, anything where robots are taking over the world or aliens are going to come and kill everyone. Yeah, things tend to be like a lot bleaker in some respects. Yeah. I also liked how they started this movie kind of like documentary style, almost like Band of Brothers, where it's talking or you're seeing an interview with elderly people talking about the past. And it it's kind of like, well, so you know that there's, I guess, the story that's being told happened somewhat in the past and you know that that is an event that already happened and people lived through it but you don't really have any context of who these people are or why they're giving this interview until the very end when you know you you go to the museum of cooper's old house in the space station and you see these interviewers kind of or interviews on screens placed around the house yeah they work it very well into the story um like that where it has a it comes back and like, oh, it actually makes sense why they're doing this interview stuff. Uh, and also just works in the moment. I think it's cool how they film them. I think they talked to actual Dust Bowl or people who lived in the, during the Dust Bowl, which I think was like a time maybe in the 30s or so when yeah, there were some like massive droughts. Um, and so, yeah, like they're kind of actually recounting their childhoods. Uh, of, wow. Yeah, lots of dust everywhere. Um, and so, yeah, they, they kind of use that real life experience and lived experience of people to explain the, the future that could be coming. That's awesome. I, I had no idea that those are real testimonials because I thought it was super well written as well, I guess is what I was thinking. I was like, oh man, like, oh, we placed the bowls upside down when we stored them because otherwise like the dust, we... I thought that was amazing. And um, the fact that, you know, is real people just makes it that much better. Yeah. yeah of course, I think, one of the other great things that we can probably both agree on is just all the great, like, inve- incredible visual sequences. Yeah. Right? I think there's a handful from, like, docking the ship in space, yep. uh, both over man's planet and over Earth, uh, going through the wormhole for the first time. Like, that oh, yeah. is just incredibly, like, trippy and mind-blowing and just looks amazing. Uh, then, yeah, the Tesseract and everything. Like, I think that's what makes the movie so enthralling, right? You're just you have something that is incredible to watch and see. Um, and yeah, you get to see that kind of visual story that, and you know, sometimes paired with the music and the sound, uh, there's some like quiet moments in space. They use a lot of like very quiet uh, sound. So it's like, as if you're actually in the vacuum where you really only hear yeah. sort of ambient stuff within the ship um, yep. to show that like, like back, the quietness of the vacuum of space. There is a particular scene where something explodes in space and you see the scene unfold from outer space. There's no sound and it's it's done so well. 
but it's also kind of cool then to see Cooper who brings sort of the sounds of Earth on with him. And I think there's just one moment you hear the, the crickets and like the nighttime and then the rain. And then they have some like thunder that Romley is listening to because Cooper gives him his music to just be like, oh, yeah, this will comfort you. I didn't even notice that. Yeah, you get like some thunder as they kind of show the endurance going past Saturn. And it's just, oh, that is it's cool. nice. It was like, you really, that is very cool. Did yourself. There's another aspect of this movie that um, I guess I always just kind of gloss over and, and don't think too much about, which is like the long nap. And it's their version of almost like cryo sleep um, where they, they go down and they can uh, not use as many resources for these long haul trips. Um, what what did you think of that? Was, was Did it feel uh, different as how it was presented in this this movie as to others or i don't i think it seemed fairly standard uh yeah maybe the way they did it was somewhat different right in terms of how they visualize it but um yeah i don't know did you have any thoughts on on that part in particular no i guess like um everything in this movie felt so almost realistic and it's odd to me that that part didn't jump out as unrealistic like i just kind of took it at face value and said yeah like that makes sense (laughs) maybe because we've seen it so much that's kind of like okay yeah we don't need to hear what it is that that they're doing and yeah i don't know if we actually have any way to do that or have speculated how that would happen yet but yeah but thought that was a a cool uh, also a cool way to not have to write in two years worth of waiting when uh they're getting to saturn exactly um, one other theme I would say that I thought was very strong, maybe not very strong, pretty strong in this movie is relativity in many senses. Um, you know, there's the sense of time being relative and obviously with, you know, the time on earth versus the time on the ship versus the time on the planet. Um, everything is kind of relative to each other. Even they make reference to Coop and his daughter's age difference. So like how old they are relative to each other, but also even just how motion is relative, right? Like how many times does it show like a ship docking on another ship and that when you're moving at the same velocity, really, it's like, it's almost like you're not moving at all in, in rel- and, and so, you know, the famous scene where he's docking on the spinning ship as it's out of control, he gets into the frame of reference relative to the ship that's like unmoving and then is able to dock. And so I think just this whole concept of relativity permeates almost like every different aspect of this movie, which I don't know if it was intentional or if I'm just, you know, grabbing at straws here, but no, I like, um, I like it. I think maybe it's because of that, that some of that stuff's so memorable right? like you can picture and people have parodied that sort of like, yeah, ship spinning and you see it becomes our stationary in uh, relative to the spinning ship. Because they're both in the same frame of reference, but yeah, just yeah, such amazing work with like the practical effects that they had and uh, the visual effects as well. So, did they did they actually spin something and and film it for for that? Because it looked real and the the shadows and lighting all looked real as well. Yeah, so I think they they used like giant LED screens. Um, they were some to do kind of like the space visuals behind the ships and they had modeled ships that uh they would film against that backdrop um and so 
yeah, chances are my or my guess would be that uh, the ship was probably stationary and it's just the screen spinning and it's bright enough that it can cast a light that it needs to onto the ship. Um, but yeah, like you see that stuff and it, because it's all integrated so well, right? The light flashing on the ship uh, with how it's like how the ship is spinning and where the sun and light is coming from. It just makes it feel like you're right there with it. Yeah, man. When the when they they first uh, initiate the artificial gravity by spinning the endurance, is that right? Um, it shows kind of the Earth spinning out the the window as they're as they're leaving it, and I feel like I would want the windows to be closed because I feel like I would just get super dizzy watching everything yeah. outside in space just spinning. <laughs> I guess if you have that, yeah, it might be a little weird to just see like a little circle going around and around. Yeah. And I think Romilly is the one who does actually get sick from that. Yeah. He needs to take the medicine. <laughs> yeah. I have a, a fun fact for you. Okay. Let's hear it. Did you know that this film was originally going to be directed by Steven Spielberg? No, I didn't. Yeah. So Kip Thorne, the physicist who is connected to this, uh, was kind of... I guess had an idea for a film or kind of wanted to do something that's rooted in science and I guess had some meetings with people and Steven Spielberg and kind of some of his people were tied to the film and they hired Jonathan Nolan to write this movie and that went through some like up and downs uh, where I think there were some delays due to the writer's strike because this was like all the way back in like, uh, 2004 uh, yeah. to 2008 and then finally he like got a third draft out but then had to go work on like The Dark Knight Rises. So Spielberg eventually kind of dropped out of the film. Um, and then that's when uh, they kind of were able to talk to Christopher Nolan and Emma Thomas. Um, wow. And yeah, that's how Christopher Nolan kind of hopped on and I think kind of brought it to the finish line. But... So do we have any indication of what the film might have looked like if it were directed by Spielberg? Uh, Just a bunch of ETs running around or what? I think partially. I think they might have had aliens at one point um, on Dr. Mann's planet, I think it was. There'd be aliens, either that or there were Russians. Um, it might have been like some sort of space race kind of thing where Russians were there at one point. Um, but uh, I don't know. I think some of the changes that kind of Nolan probably put, it, put in with Dr. Mann and kind of the symbolism of like man uh, being maybe like the evil force on that on that planet oh, like really worked didn't well. even think of that yeah <laughs> it, well it's funny because like earlier in the film brand talks about like one of the things that she finds so interesting is that like it's a man versus nature kind of thing or human versus nature yeah. type uh voyage where it's like oh you don't call nature evil right like you don't yeah. call a lion evil for killing the antelope you just sort of say oh yeah that's just it needs to do that um but then yeah man on this planet dr man is just all alone and he's like and maybe it is sort of like is he evil for wanting people to come rescue him that he couldn't bear to be alone um yeah and so yeah he did what he could to survive and get people to kind of come to him so i loved that entire arc as well how he faked the data got sent out the message to to come get rescued uh just to go and try to steal a ship like also, because they set it up right from the start where they're talking about these these 12, the bravest among us who went out to these these planets on one-way journeys 
and man who's supposed to be the captain or the the bravest of them all is the one who ends up you know betraying our protagonists yeah so maybe you could help me here because this was one part i was a bit confused by which is like why did he actually have to betray cooper and try to i guess incapacitate him my my understanding is essentially that he just wanted a ship like he just had to do everything in his power to get a ship and so i guess by trying to kill cooper um he makes that easier because cooper probably wouldn't let him just take a ship uh that's my guess so he just didn't feel confident i guess in being able to create a mutiny of sorts yeah, because he also pulls Cooper's like uh, communication thing off of his his helmet, which Cooper could have also used to talk to Tars or like the other robots to to try to, I guess, commandeer the ship. Or yeah, I guess. Or yeah, once they once he finds out that it's not real, that like there's no surface that they can't live on this planet, um, then yeah, as he just sort of he knows that Cooper will be mad and will kind of what like (laughs) yeah i guess you gotta ask yourself like what were the repercussions what would they be if they just found out that he lied (laughs) like they're not gonna just leave him there you know well maybe they would Hmm. oh yeah maybe they wouldn't have enough resources to also bring him back so you you think they'd have enough resources to just bring him and then go to edmund's planet or something but uh that's a good point but yeah it still makes for an incredible sequence right because yeah yeah I think I only thought about it this time as I was watching, but during my first experience, right? I was just like so enthralled with everything. It was like, okay, this doesn't even matter. It just looks beautiful. The part where he cracks Coop's helmet and he's walking away from him as Coop is like gasping for air. I thought that was just brilliant because it, it really shows that this character, he's not necessarily like, he's not acting out of pure malice, you know? He's... He's doing it for survival and he knows that he's a coward and he's sorry. And the line, he says something like, you're not alone. Like, just listen to my voice. Like, do you see your family? Like, it's so creepy and I I think well done. Yeah, but he's just like, he is maybe just human in that sense where he knew what he'd see when he's dying. But just like, I can't watch this and um, yeah, turns and walks away. Yeah, tried to be there with him. Man, how did they keep Matt Damon secret? Uh, just a lot of hard work. <laughs> Christopher, yeah, because Nolan loves to just keep lots of things secret, right? He hates spoilers. He doesn't want anyone to ruin anything in his movies. Uh-huh. Um, so yeah, he, I think he just likes having things that people can go and be surprised about. Uh, <laughs> That's fair. But I guess that still gets to the question of, like, how did they keep Matt Damon secret? (laughs) Well, so let's say you wanted to hide Matt Damon. What would you do? I'd just keep him in one of those uh, cryo bags until uh, the actors open him up. Let's just have a little feed tube in there. Just have no one on set. No one's allowed to see anything. Um, So it's just the actors, and then they're all under NDA. I guess, like, he wasn't in the movie for a really long time. And I guess once he gets up to the ship, he's not actually acting with anyone else. And so they don't have to align schedules or anything at that point. So maybe it was, like, a day or two of him shooting with other people and then they could squeeze him in otherwise. Probably, yeah. Man, that planet sounded like it sucked. (laughs) You got ice clouds. 
Yeah. Out of all the planets, <laughs> I guess this is a dumb question because the movie tells you, but out of all the planets, which one do you think is the most interesting? Well, most interesting is an interesting twist because I love like the water planet, just like the thought of an entire planet covered in knee deep water just sounds so, so rad and so scary. Like you don't know what could be living under that foot of water. And then the fact that there's these huge waves from like, again, probably the tidal forces of a gargantua is just like something I've never seen before in, in, in anything like monstrous waves, like a hundred stories high or whatever. So I think that that planet is really interesting. Um, honestly, out of all the, th- out of the three planets that they go to, Edmunds is probably the least interesting because it's just, it seems livable. You know, Anne Hathaway is able to breathe there without her helmet on. Yeah. So it just seems kind of normal. Yeah. Sport life. And we don't necessarily know too much about it, right? Because they don't spend much yeah. time there other than a brief glimpse of it at the end. Do we know how Edmunds died? Like, was it just like a, an earthquake or something? I don't know. Um, could have been maybe it was uh, like not enough resources or something. Yeah, because I guess it's been, what, 30 years since uh, since they would have left. Because I think like they sent people out 10 years before Cooper leaves, right? Mm, right. Or something. And then, uh, yeah, then they do the 20-year stint on the one planet. True. <laughs> so, yeah, it could just be a time thing where 30 years uh, it couldn't last that long. Oh, that's that's true. So when they get to man, he's been on the planet for a long time in in sleep mode. It's crazy. Yeah, Miller. And the fact that <clears throat> with the the time um, relativity stuff on the water planet, the fact that Miller had died like five minutes before they got there, essentially, just blows my mind. Yeah. Once you get into relativity, there's a lot of cool things. And when we talk about like the black hole, there's a lot of cool stuff there to it like falling into one and what that looks like oh, so yeah. i'm excited yeah do you want to talk about some science um yeah let's let's do it i mean it's funny to because interstellar is such like a scientifically accurate film in, in many respects feels like whenever we just talk about the movie we're talking about the science anyway that's true <laughs> it's just so driven and baked into the structure of the film but I, yeah maybe we could start with something uh something fun you know like murphy's law Oh yeah, tell tell us about Murphy's Law because there's a line in this where Murph is like, "Dad, why'd you and Mom name me after something bad like Murphy's Law?" And then Coop goes on to explain that uh, Murphy's Law is originally stated as like, "Whatever can happen will happen," um, with a little bit extra of like, "If we do enough trials." It was a a scientist who is um, talking about his experiments and yeah, whatever can happen will happen. In the experiment, provided you kind of do it enough time, see it. It's sort of connected to the law of large numbers, right? Which, in law of large numbers, any outrageous event that is statistically possible will happen if you allow that event to happen enough times. So this is like if you had a hundred monkeys or chimps in a room on typewriters just smashing keys. So assuming that the key smashing is random, you know, given enough time, they will eventually produce all of the works of William Shakespeare. Correct. Yeah, I mean, that's basically it, right? Infinity goes on for so long that... Um, and, yeah, I guess it's kind of a hypothetical because you won't obviously see every event happen. You can't do that many trials. 
um, in, in your experiments necessarily. Um, and maybe, yeah, I think if you think of it as an individual, uh, it's not like whatever can happen to a person will happen to them. Um, cause obviously there's just so much and you don't have an infinite amount of time for things to happen. So maybe there's a bit of misinterpretation when you say that. But yeah, how, how did that come to be? Cause now when people talk about Murphy's law, they talk about it similar to how Murph in this film, uh, thinks of it or interprets it, which is, you know, if there's anything bad that's going to happen to me, it will happen. I think so. that I think started with, uh, I think on fishing vessels and it was just sort of this kind of quote law unquote of a uh, law of the sea where it's like anything that can go wrong on the sea will go wrong um just because it's maybe such a dangerous thing uh, so you have to be prepared exactly yeah wanted to make sure that you had a contingency for for everything right so i think that kind of moved its way into the colloquialism um and connected itself to murphy's law which it's it's a subset of murphy's law right yeah yeah <laughs> could say that um yeah and also everything that can go right will happen if you do enough trials but um yeah it's a great way i think to kind of start a character right you're sort of named after this thing that could be in some respects optimistic right yeah no absolutely and i guess it it has a little more meaning as you go into the film a little bit further you find you know there's these infinite i guess realms or infinite possibilities that coop is able to see in physical space and infinite points in time maybe i should say um and he's able to make stuff happen because he has access to that infinity um so it feels somewhat connected to to the ending of the film right yeah we didn't really even talk about the ending and uh yeah like the tesseract he's in and five-dimensionals kind of beings that put him into this space where he can move through time um but yeah that's the that's something crazy we could get to uh, but maybe we, i feel like we haven't really built the foundation to get there just yet <laughs> <laughs> all right so we'll start with arithmetic we'll yeah. get to calculus in about seven hours <laughs> cool cool so um aside from murphy's law i think like the big glaring the science topic in this movie is, is black holes. You know, we could potentially talk about wormholes, but we already talked about wormholes in our Event Horizon episode. Um, there's some other stuff as well, like the the cryo sleep thing, and which I think we also talked about in another episode. I think maybe we, I think in like maybe aging. Um, yeah. Yes, yes. Yeah, and uh, what immortality? We talked about some cryo sleep stuff. Yes, oh, this is the Zardos episode. Yeah. <laughs> but black um, holes the singularity or a black holes yes a singularity at least like that's how we we model it because to be honest we don't know what is within that event horizon right and that's uh yeah the whole thing about this movie is uh, because to figure out plan a and make plan a work they need to observe a singularity which you can't do outside of the event horizon so to get the data they need they would actually have to go into the black hole observe uh the black hole from the inside to be able to get the data they need to help solve their equation yep and we should maybe uh talk about you know what is a black hole and what is an event horizon you know the um so to, to step back a bit a black hole is really um it's it's really massive 
So there's a, it's really heavy. There's a lot of mass. And when you have this collection of mass that's so great, the gravitational force from all the matter within it, you know, pulls inwards. And eventually, uh, it its gravity is so great that nothing can escape its grasp, not even light. And so that, that uh, surface of the structure called a black hole is what we call the event horizon. And so that's the point at which nothing can escape, you know, no information, uh, no light. And so once you're past it, you know, down is the only way to, only direction you can go. Right. And black holes, are, they're created from collapsing stars. Is that correct? Stellar black holes are. Um, and that's when uh, essentially the way that a star retains its its size is you have fusion going on on the inside, which exerts this massive outwards pressure. But they're also so massive. So the gravity is pulling inwards. And so you have this equilibrium of forces which keep it in place. But, you know, as you run out of... Um, of fuel on the inside, I should say, uh, of a star, or that fusion process slows down, then you get less outwards pressure, and eventually the gravity takes over and kind of pulls everything to the center, and that's when you get um, a black hole, uh, or I guess that's when you get a supernova, and then what remains is this this like sometimes a black hole, sometimes a neutron star. Okay, but there are other black holes that aren't that aren't stellar black holes, correct? I believe so. So there's this thing called a primordial black hole which uh, is the idea that, you know, at the start of the universe, there could have been these black holes that are created. Um, I, I don't know too much more about them. Uh, there's one theory that uh, potentially dark matter, which is this matter that makes up like 80% of the gravitational force uh, in our galaxy, you know, is, is what holds galaxies together and we can't see it. It doesn't interact in any way with with light. And so we're still looking for what that is. So one of the theories is that, hey, maybe this is just many, many, many primordial black holes that are just floating around space because, you know, they would have this gravitational force that have mass, but we wouldn't be able to see them. But there's a bunch of reasons why we don't think that that's actually the reason. But um, aside from that, there's another type of black hole, which is very common, which is the supermassive black hole. And so these things are in the center of every galaxy and they're massive. And when I say massive, when you think of how heavy the sun is, which is like, makes up, I don't know, what, 99, 98% of the mass in our solar system. These things are like billions of times more massive than our sun. Like they're huge. And they have diameters that are many times wider than our entire solar system. And so these things are these massive, massive structures. But the interesting thing is that despite these things being in the middle of every galaxy, Instead of when you think of like our solar system or an atom, you think of the nucleus containing most of the mass and everything kind of rotating around that nucleus or, or revolving around it. But with the supermassive black hole, it's not like 90% or 99% of the mass in our galaxy. It's very low. It's like zero point something like percent. And so it's not that everything is revolving around the supermassive black hole because of its gravity holding it. Uh, in the center, it just happens to be there, and we don't really know right now where they come from, or or how they come to be, or why every galaxy has one. So I think there's there's still a lot of research going into what makes a supermassive black hole, but um, these things are are some of the the craziest forces of nature that uh, exist in our universe. Huh. That'd be very interesting to to see if we can find out why that, like what it is that causes these supermassive black holes and why they're in the middle of the galaxy yeah and I, I wonder if the answer to 
you know, what is dark matter would help answer that question in any way. Or maybe it ends up just being kind of a, a simple mathematical or physics principles of, you know, matter collecting in the middle or I don't know. Um, but uh, it, 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 it's very interesting. Yeah. And so has anyone ever seen a black hole? Yes, actually. We have recently uh, seen, and when you say seen, there's, I guess there's a, a couple of different ways that you could talk about seeing a black hole. I think um, a couple of years ago, we turned on this detector called LIGO. And essentially what this is, is it's sensing gravitational waves. And a gravitational wave is the super, super, super minuscule disruption or a wave that travels through space-time and when we have these huge detectors like kilometers long um, you can measure kind of a difference in space-time measured between them to like a very very precise amount and uh, that's kind of how we, we recognize them but anyways the gravitational waves that we have recently started seeing uh, are typically from a merger of like two black holes for example and so we've seen them to exist in that sense of a black hole mergers and then even more recently, we've actually uh, photographed a black hole. And when we say photographed a black hole, it's really, you know, the light that you're collecting is the light that is, uh, I guess, is getting lensed around uh, the black hole because you can't actually see a black hole with, with light itself because, like we said, light doesn't escape a black hole or once it's past the event horizon. And so we've seen that. I think we might see its secretion disk as well in this image, but I'm not 100% sure. Essentially, what a secretion disk is, is just the matter that's that's spinning around a black hole that's being tossed into this, this vortex of uh, collapsing matter that's being pulled in. Right. Yeah, like I know, so this movie uh, at the time was pretty much, I'm not sure if it still is or if they produced some more renders of it, but at the time was essentially like one of the most detailed images of the black hole that we've ever modeled um and it was i think something that actually surprised kip thorne the physicist when he saw it he's like he didn't realize what he was gonna see he had a picture in his mind and then he saw oh wait no that makes like perfect sense um yeah because as you said like you kind of have that black mass in the center uh, where no light can escape but yeah you have that lensing because the uh, black hole is so heavy the light from behind it all the stars coming uh, that shine behind it are being bent around the black hole uh, and kind of coming in so we can see it on the other side. So we're actually kind of seeing around it in this crazy shape. And then, yeah, I think you mentioned uh, the accretion disc, right? Oh, say... <laughs> like you said secretion, uh, but I think it's called... The, uh, 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 yeah, yeah, my bad. So the accretion disc kind of orbits... Secretion disc. Yeah, it orbits around and it's kind of made of like the form. It's formed by stars breaking apart and falling into it and yeah as you said that matter that's shredded orbits around um and yeah it's one where like this image matched what the photograph that i think was taken um that we saw like you could actually see the shape and it looked very similar to what we saw in interstellar uh, if only blurrier in the photograph yeah still super cool though we, we also see um when we look for supermass black holes in the center of galaxies, we can actually just stare at that spot and we'll see over time stars whipping around them, like being flung out in ellipticals as they orbit this this invisible spot that we can't actually see ourselves. Are they like being whipped out like a slingshot or is it more that they're just spinning around very quickly? Um, I, I, I think a little bit of both, as in like there's some that... Uh, 
they come very close to the black hole. So you see them move very quickly when they're right around it and then they get flung out. But then, you know, eventually they're brought back and they continue doing that. Right, right. Uh, and so, yeah, black holes, they're this singularity that's supermassive. You can't cross the, you can't go over the event horizon and then come back because once you kind of go in, uh, nothing can escape. As you said, no information. I guess there's Hawking radiation that gets emitted from a black hole, which is something a little different. Um, I don't know too much about it, but... Dude, this gets crazy. So Hawking, essentially, when black holes were first theorized, it was thought that they they only grew and they only ate matter, that nothing could escape because the gravitational force was so strong that uh, they would only continue to grow forever into eternity. But what Stephen Hawking found out is that there's this process... Um, of shrinking or evaporating that uh, black holes go through uh, via this process called Hawking radiation. And so essentially what happens is near the outer surface of the event horizon, all the time in our universe, there's matter that's being created, uh, a particle and an antiparticle, and then they reform into just pure energy and they just pop in and out of existence. And when this happens, right near the edge of the event horizon. Sometimes you get one particle that's on the inside of the event horizon, and then another particle, it's it's antiparticle on the outside. And so that one can actually escape. Okay. And so you have all this evaporation happening right at the surface. And so over time, and this is a process that takes like, like a Google number of years. It's like one with like a hundred zeros behind. It. Like it's a very, very long process for this to happen. And so... These are the last things that are going to happen uh, in our universe, or so we think, which is the evaporation of these black holes over eons and eons. But essentially, over time, you know, given enough time, <laughs> large numbers, there will be uh, eventually a point where all the black holes have evaporated. Um, what's crazy about this process as well is that as it gets smaller, the process actually speeds up. And so uh, it gets smaller and smaller and smaller until it goes so fast that it explodes in this beautiful, crazy display of high energy and um, and light. And so it'll be almost like fireworks in a dark sky when that starts happening. So the Hawking radiation, uh, I guess, as it shrinks and stuff, um, it's not like when it explodes, everything that's ever sucked up is released, right? Like Hawking radiation is that the stuff that it's already... Exactly eaten i guess sort of like being destroyed and then emitted in some other way yes in in a way which which poses some problems as well because there's this thing called the conservation of information which is essentially saying that um all information when you think of information is defined as like the structure of atoms um or or how how matter or or anything is arranged that that is conserved throughout any process so even though you know you might burn a piece of paper for example um if you have all the information about that system already like the, the arrangement of the atoms the temperature you know all the the flaming bits or pieces and whatever theoretically you could reconstruct that piece of paper because you have all the information right but the problem is that with a black hole what happens to something as it falls into the black hole and then it gets dissipated as Hawking radiation. Is that information truly preserved or has it been completely kind of obfuscated from, from any observer? And so that's kind of this problem that I don't think is actually resolved at this point. 
but um, it's it's one of those illustrations of why black holes are so interesting and so weird because it's almost like it's like a glitch in our universe. It's something that shouldn't exist. It's something. It's like you've divided by zero in in space time. It's unreal. And you talked about falling into a black hole as well. And let me tell you what it would look like for an outside observer to watch something go into a black hole. Because you never actually see any light from beyond the event horizon, if I were to watch, for example, you fall into a black hole, it would look like you're approaching the event horizon and you would go, you would essentially just freeze on the surface. And I would never see you actually fall into the black hole. And then over time, you know, your image would fade uh, and you would be redshifted because the light, uh, the photons and the, the waves would be stretched out essentially uh, to, to look more like on the, I guess, the, the radio side or the long wavelength side until you essentially would fade to nothing. But when I say nothing, it's really asymptotic. So it's it approaches complete fading, but you know, there'd be a point where photons are being sent every I don't know, million years and it'd be so far apart that you would be essentially invisible. But from that point of view, you know, there's there's information that's on the surface, all around the surface of the black hole. And um, so maybe it is preserved in that sense. Yeah, it's interesting. I have like that exact same description. Like we're on the same wavelength because I have that exact same description of what it looks like if you're looking from an outside observer. Yeah. Um, but conversely, I guess if you're the person falling in, it's interesting what you see, right? Because yeah. if you're the one falling, you pretty much just fall toward the horizon and kind of go through it. Any signals coming in, you can still see because they're just following you down. Um, yep. And so kind of like how it's shown in the film, you end up falling down through into the into the black hole. Uh, your field of vision kind of shrinks, I guess, as you're falling into that uh yeah, into the hole and it just yeah you just do that forever i guess and also well uh i we we mentioned this a little bit before when we were when we were chatting but uh in terms of relativity and how time is perceived you know as you go deeper into that black hole it really looks as though the rest of the universe is on fast forward and that you essentially will see the end of time just all of time just pass by um, as you approach that singularity. Yeah. yeah, if you were left there kind of forever. Um, now, there's this other interesting aspect of black holes where uh, I think it's called the outflying singularity and the infalling singularity, right? So as you go in, you're kind of falling down through it, and there is stuff that's fallen in there before you, right? So I think because of kind of relativity and time, you could kind of fall and catch up to it. And then it's just sort of this almost bulk of stuff that's all piling in, right? And you're kind of getting, catching up into it based off how fast you're falling. Um, and then there's stuff that's coming in on top of you, right? Uh, and so that stuff could potentially like catch up to you from above. Um, and yeah, so you get like these kind of two singularities above and below where there's stuff that has come in before and after you that sandwiches um, oh, that's yeah, terrifying. Sandwiches you on either side, and that's actually in the movie. You see, uh, kind of just like space dust that kind of hits the ship and everything. Uh, oh yeah, yeah. So that's that outflying singularity. That's the stuff that oh, came in before. I see. Uh, Cooper's kind of caught up to. Yeah, that's that. That is really interesting. 
there's um I, I feel like there's a different ways to fall into a singularity as well or fall into a black hole. I know um for example, when we talk about like what are the features of a black hole to an outside observer? There's there's really just the mass is all you can really tell about a black hole and its spin, I think. There's there's really nothing else, but the spin is super important because when we talk about for example, stellar black holes, which are black holes that are formed from stars that have died, um, they still have to obey the conservation of angular momentum, which is the same reason why, you know, when you have speed skaters, or sorry, not speed skaters, <laughs> um, figure skaters, and they pull their arms in, why they spin faster versus when they pull their arms out. And so when you have this star that it's massive in diameter come down, same mass essentially, but into a much smaller volume, then it ends up spinning much, much faster. And they can spin like a million times a second or something crazy like that, like super, super fast. And so it's, I, I, I believe what happens is it actually kind of, uh, it pulls space-time along kind of behind it in, in this almost vortex or like a torus shape. Um, and so as you're falling in, you can start kind of falling around and spinning down into the black hole instead of just falling kind of directly, as you would imagine, maybe uh falling onto the earth from like uh from a plane right um you'd instead kind of be wrapped around over and over so yeah you just kind of like you get into its orbit and pulled end up like spiraling around like you're in a whirlpool or something exactly exactly like a whirlpool and the the weird thing uh when when you're trying to visualize this also is that if you think of the singularity as as an undefined as a point in space you can't rotate a point you know like you, you could you could you can transform a line you can transform a plane but you can't spin a point and so how does this point uh, of mass actually have uh, spin to it and so some people will will call the singularity instead of ringularity where it's it's essentially like a ring that's spinning which kind of dictates the uh, position or or its orientation I should say right and does uh yeah does the spin affect how volatile like a black hole might be or how aggressive or something i know there's stuff called like a gentle black hole or yeah i'm not sure i i so i know that they use the term gentle black hole in the movie as well talking about how essentially you could pass the event horizon safely and i think the gentleness is and this is kind of going off the cuff but i think the gentleness is more a factor of how large the black hole is for example for really really huge black holes the event horizon could be pretty far out from the center. And so you could pass it without even knowing, like it could just feel like regular space. And then you would find out as you tried to leave that you wouldn't be able to, which would be kind of frightening, I think. <laughs> and so I, th- I think, uh, I don't know how much the spin actually affects that. I think the spin would probably affect if you had like a quasar kind of thing, like um, jets of matter shooting out uh, of, of these these things i think that probably has to do with that and maybe you know how violent the accretion disk is and how hot the right the matter that is spinning gets yeah because i think the accretion disk because it's sort of the matter of dying stars and dead stars is can generally be pretty hot but um yeah if you want you could have like a gentler one where it's not quite as hot and you might be able to actually fly nearby it man it's insane yeah space in general like there's just so much out there that we don't necessarily know or yeah 
Well, man, one other thing I wanted to mention about kind of the conservation of uh, information is that if we are um, conserving that information by having uh, essentially these images on the surface of a black hole um, that represent all the information of the structure of that 3D thing, it's really interesting when you think of that being a 3D object being totally encoded into a 2D surface. Oh, because crazy. the surface of the event horizon is 2D. And so really it's like it has all these kind of implications of um, maybe like just just in terms of a higher dimensional thing being totally 100% represented in a lower dimensional uh, world. And so, you know, what does that mean for, for us? Uh, who knows? Maybe we're just a holographic projection. Yeah. Oh, man. There was some crazy stuff I was reading about this talk about kind of higher dimensions right so they mentioned in the movie a couple times the, f- the word bulk and so the bulk oh, yeah. is hyperspace it's the fourth and fifth kind of spatial dimensions or yeah any any spatial dimension greater than than three right uh but yeah within the bulk you can't really do anything because right all matter that we know can only exist in 3d space um light can only travel through 3d space uh yeah these things can't really move or do anything in a fourth like spatial dimension uh and so yeah it's just like if you end up having that higher dimension what how does that actually fit into the universe and how does it work but there's the like it's so hard to try to even imagine what a fourth spatial dimension might look like for us humans who have you know, grown up and evolved in this very three-dimensional, three-spatial-dimensional world. And um, there's actually, there's a game that someone is working on, uh, which I would recommend you, like, look at the trailer or something, or the development blog. But he's trying to make this puzzle game in four spatial dimensions. And uh, it's crazy, because the objects are kind of morphing around, but it's like, it it follows the laws of dimension, but it's made on a computer. It's it's cool. I, I'd say that. That's a one-up of the kind of 2D game where the character learns about three-dimensional space and then he can rotate his world. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Man, black holes, though. Insane. Just forces of nature. And we we still... I feel like there's so much that we still don't know about them. And I feel like they will reveal a lot about the nature of being. You know, like... We don't know what's what's within them. Maybe entire universes are created within a black hole. And uh, we just don't... You know, maybe our universe is a result of being in a black hole as well. Uh, it, yeah, talking about this kind of stuff, the line in the movie that um, that Cooper says, right, where it's like we used to look up to this guy and learn about our place in the universe, just feels so... Just so right. And like that, I guess, mentality, that feeling... Um, it just fits so well with like yeah the universe is so big and we don't really know much about it and yeah it's like have we lost that at all yeah I, I love that that line I, I think it's it's one of the best quotes yeah we used to look up at the sky and wonder at our place in the stars now we just look down and worry about our place in the dirt and it fits so well with I guess the themes around preserving the spirit of humanity and um, innovation and forward moving and forward looking right yeah, like, I think he, if not, if he doesn't say it exactly, he kind of has this idea that we're explorers, we're meant to be explorers. Um, 
do you think that's kind of true? Do you think humans, the spirit of humanity would be one of exploration and pioneering or is that? Yeah, I would, I would say exploration and pioneering is more so a subset of a broader umbrella, which I would say is curiosity and um, continual improvement. That being said, I feel like there's been periods in our species past, which haven't proved that to be true, like the dark ages where no, nothing really happened. It's almost like you could fast forward through all the dark ages and um, we would have been at the exact same spot. So I think it probably on a more macro scale, maybe ebbs and flows a bit, but I think on average, um, we've always wanted to invent and to optimize and to put our intelligence uh, to use. And so I, I would say in terms of exploration and uh, pioneering, that kind of flows naturally from having this curiosity or this desire to to know everything. I mean, yeah, it is pretty interesting. To, like if you think of uh, kind of humanity's evolution, like when we the first humans to kind of set foot, foot on Earth, um, some of the first things we did was just expand, right? I think moved out of kind of the heart of Africa and then expanded into Asia. We did pioneer or I guess explore pretty quickly. And uh, we had species or not species. We had people who communities that built boats and sailed to islands and like Polynesia and into Australia. And that happened like very early on in um, humanity's existence. Right. And we just kind of covered most of the world um, as much as we could pretty quickly. I think the, um, the darker side of that is about whether that's actually beneficial for our species long-term. Cause I think, you know, we, we've seen that run a little out of control. We have, um, the world is, is getting overpopulated a little bit. You know, we have kind of, uh, some, some technologies or industries in place, which, you know, they, we've been living off of the fruits of those industries for a long time, but I think the side effects are catching up to us as a species. And so, you know, is that sustainable? Like it, it is optimistic in a sense, and definitely that's how Cooper sees it. But, you know, maybe uh, in reality, maybe we do have to tone it down a bit and just go into sustain yeah. mode. Like, so again, I think the writing of this film, the quotes are just, you can pull them out for everything we're talking about. Like, so <laughs> yeah. that whole thing, talking about the excess of the 20th century and, uh, six billion people now seven billion um every last one of them trying to have it all like that's kind of exactly what you're saying like are we kind of pushing ourselves too far and that's what's going to get us into potential sort of end of the world scenario where it feels like it's not the big nuclear war or anything but uh to take another quote from a poem um it might end not with a bang but with a whimper right like it's sort of this slow suffocation starving that might be happening yeah which i guess it applies to both earth in this hypothetical future scenario of you know climate change and, and light but also of our universe in total like we talked a little bit about the era of black holes and and them evaporating after years and years and years and years um and also kind of hand in hand with that I think is the eventual heat death of the universe where entropy kind of continues to increase and disorder in the universe increases until it's all just just homogenous, I guess, and random, just energy floating around 
Um, and that there's nothing glorious about that ending. You know, it's it it is very silent. It is um, like a whimper. But maybe it'll be more fun to possibly end this instead of talking about the end of the world and <laughs> the universe. Talk about the end of the movie, and again yes. focus on that like hopeful aspect. Because yeah, 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 yeah. I guess so. In the end, um, Cooper realizes that humanity, I guess, becomes, I guess, would it be multi-dimensional or higher dimensional beings yeah like five dimensional so i assume they discovered a new dimension um whether that is related to to love or that that i wasn't clear about if their dimension was just a new spatial dimension or something or if there was a literal connection to love yeah i think it's like they learned to harness like a fourth spatial dimension um so it's like using love the love of humanity and love of like the people um yeah they're able to send that message to murph uh, about how to harness gravity and that's probably the first step to yeah they launch a giant space station from earth into orbit or into space to travel um so there you can have like a colony there that maybe they that could be self-sustaining on its own but um yeah you also have the potential to colonize other planets right like the title of the film interstellar it ends with us becoming interstellar beings where now we have the ability to harness gravity and possibly make wormholes of our own um, as well as, yeah, colonize uh, colonize planets and have, like, what is, uh, no, like what you, how you want to say, like, pioneers on a planet here in this system and then maybe pioneers in other systems and, yeah, could that be our future? Yeah, I, I mean, I hope so. I think... Um uh it's exactly what you said it's an optimistic ending because i think in order for long term i'm saying like long term we have to become interstellar beings if we want to survive like one day the sun will go out and so we will have to find a home somewhere else if if we want to continue uh the the race and so I, i think this movie paints a beautiful picture of of the first step towards that i think um it also introduces a bit of like a, a time paradox where it's like, oh, like the humans of the future, you know, sent back this time or this information so we could help ourselves to become the people of the future. So, you know, who did it first? But um, that, you know, I don't want to think too hard on that. Yeah, that part we could just sort of like go put under the table, <laughs> put on the rug. Yeah. But, you know, that being said, we're dealing with dimensions that, I don't understand. And so maybe it's not a problem when you're a five-dimensional being. Yeah, time can be a valley that you can walk on, walk into. And what is it? Or the past is a valley you can walk into and the future a mountain you climb over. So Yeah. Um, yeah, if we ever get there, that would be pretty cool. It would be pretty neat. <laughs> <laughs> you know, whatever our species might look like in the future, it'll be far different than, you know... How, how we look today, what our cultural norms are, how we process information, how we feel, how we communicate with each other. It'll be almost impossible to recognize, but, you know, we'll still be related. We'll still be uh, that ancestry in place, which I think is crazy. Even in the opposite direction, this is going off on a tangent now, but like when I think of any anyone you know, yourself, your friends, your family, Every single living person can be traced back to the first living thing ever, at least yeah, on Earth. Yeah, like the first single you know? cellular organism. 
yeah, there's there's an unbroken lineage, which has gone on for billions of years, which is insane. Do you know that sharks are older than the rings of Saturn? <laughs> what? <laughs> I mean, like, not like an individual shark, species, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> uh-huh. yeah. And trees. That's pretty wild. That like a species can last that long. Um, yeah. I mean, it must mean that there's hope for they're us. They're doing something right. You know, well, that's that's a thing. Like, I don't want to get into the depressing stuff. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we've talked about, uh, I guess, like both Drake equation and um, what is it? The filter is great filter and all this before. So we don't need to get yeah. into that today. But <laughs> <laughs> uh, Cool. I think that that might do it for us today. I think so. Um, well, thank you, everyone, for listening. Please share the show with your friends and follow us on social. You know, we are at Simonis Fiction on Twitter and at Simonis Fi on Facebook and Instagram. We're also Simonis Fi at gmail.com where you can send us your suggestions for future episodes. Yeah, I guess uh, thank you to Josh for recommending this episode uh, for us to watch Interstellar this time. Thank you, Josh. Yeah, we're always looking for, for new suggestions as to what you guys want to hear. So let us know. In the meantime... I'm Christopher Stern. And I'm Nathan Yim. Until next time, hold Hold on on to your butts. butts.